So let me pray. Jesus, we, uh, we do believe and we know that nobody comes to you, not even us. We didn't come to follow you except that you did something. You were drawing us. You were like a powerful magnet. You drew us to Jesus. And so we pray right now for these people that are on our hearts and minds right now. And uh, these are the people we pray for. One, two, three. Whisper their names. And God, I, the, I know the people these others have prayed for and the ones I pray for, sometimes I think, I, I have no idea how they'd even make the leap to follow you, let alone come to church. They seem so far. But God, you can do anything. If you can draw Matthew to follow you, and he was, lit, he was way out of boundaries of what anybody thought would follow. So if you can draw Matthew to yourself, you can draw anybody. So God, we, and we want to see, we want to see that, God. We want to see you draw somebody to, your, to yourself that we think is unlikely. Because we, we believe in the power of prayer, but we also believe in your power to draw somebody to Jesus. So I ask you to do that. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know why. I'm kind of losing my voice. I was by myself yesterday. Kathy and David are up in Chicago with some of our other kids. The only, thing, the only person I talked to yesterday was my dog. So I can't remember why I'm losing my voice. So anyway, uh, but uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll try to go to the next one. Go to the one that's word provoke. So the word for today is provoke. All right. Uh, I love the definition. <laughs> to deliberately make someone annoyed or angry. Um, I'm sure there's times you've done that in your relationships, in your marriage, in your work, or people, maybe you think of people that have provoked you. Maybe they do it unintentionally, but usually provoking is a sense of intentionality. There's an intention to deliberately annoy or make somebody angry. So uh, yesterday, go to this next slide. Yesterday, both my sons were at Chicago Cubs game, and uh, I just saw this just this morning, actually, one of the, uh, the pitcher for the Cubs intentionally hit a batter, all right? It happens in pro baseball, but he deliberately hit the guy. Guy gets a free base because he's trying to send a message, but obviously it's annoying and aggravating, and then uh, both teams cleared the bench. They didn't start fighting, but when pitchers do that in baseball, they do it to some degree to provoke. They're trying to send a message by provoking, all right? So that's our word today, provoke, because Jesus, in his entry into Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday. Today I'm going to call it Provoking Sunday, because Jesus was very intentional and deliberate about provoking people. Not in a jerky way, not like he's a jerk. No, he, he knew what he was doing, and sometimes there's parts of our our lives, it, Jesus needs to provoke to get our attention about something, right? So there's two things. Go to the next two slides. There's two things we're going to look at today. <laughs> this is all from the passage of uh, Matthew 21. This, the city of Jerusalem was put in an uproar. Jesus did something that provoked an uproar. An uproar, uh, is, the sense of that word is shaken up and agitated and unnerved. All right, this is not the part they were celebrating and singing to Jesus. This is, the, this is the reaction where Jesus provoked and they were unnerved. They were in an uproar. They were agitated. And I'll, we'll talk why that is. So that's one thing Jesus provoked. But then also another part of the passage we'll look at today, the leaders were indignant. 
And Jesus knew they would be because of some things he did. Indignant being this angry or kind of like, I can't believe. It's, a, it's an intensity of anger toward what somebody did that you think was like wrong. Right? So Jesus provokes both these emotions, this, this uproar agitation, but also this indignant anger. And why did he do that? I mean, what, what's up? So we've been doing a series all through Matthew just called Following Jesus because there's no one like him. Matthew, again, was a tax collector. He was totally, nobody would put him on the list of people that could follow Jesus, let alone somebody that would write about the life of Jesus. But Matthew is, in, uh, he is clearly laser-focused on showing people the uniqueness of Jesus. There's nobody like him. He does, he is so unique. He's powerfully unique. He's just, so that's what Matthew wants to do. So today we're going to look uh, in Matthew 21. So Matthew 21 is, we call it Palm Sunday because they had palm branches. But uh, sometimes in, in doing that, we, we kind of skip right to the celebratory part of what was going on. And we miss, which is a large part of this chapter, a large part of Jesus' life, how much he provokes these folks. He provokes the religious people. Just like he provokes us when we have religiosity in our hearts. He can, Jesus can provoke us. We don't like it, but sometimes we need it. So go to the slide here for a second. Let me explain a little bit here. So this is the map. I had this last week on a map, but I'm going to just explain it a little bit. So the northern part of Israel is called Galilee. It's the province of Galilee. It's the Galilee region. It's where Jesus grew up. It's where all the disciples were from. All right. The southern part, Judea, province of Judea, is where Jerusalem is. In between is Samaria. That's where the Samaritans were, and Jewish people held them in contempt, didn't want to because they thought they were half-breeds. They were theologically uh, off. But let me explain a little bit about the, about the relationship of Judeans and what Judeans thought about Galileans, because that plays into this picture, all right? So the Judeans, because it was central to Jerusalem, uh, they thought they did religion right. I'm, I'm looking at the Pharisees, but anybody who lived in that area, because they were close to Jerusalem, thought they did religion right. It was good. Everything they did was, you know, proper. The Galileans, I mean, I'll use a modern-day example. Galileans would be like uh, West Virginian hill country people going to New York City. The New York people would look down on them. And the Galileans were different politically. They had an accent that was kind of a, if I'll use this, it was a hickish accent of Aramaic. It was sloppy, kind of what you think when you hear accents of people are like, well, uneducated accents. Um, culturally, they were despised by the Judeans, kind of like, kind of like East Coast people might despise the hill, you know, Appalachian people from West Virginia, like, they're not educated, you know, we're better than them. Um, the Judeans thought they did religion right there. So there was, there was more than just different geographic realities. It was, there was a different culture. And so this was Passover week when Jesus, we read last week that he comes down, and Jesus grew up in Galilee, so... Nazareth, all the, and most of his ministry was up there. Jesus had come down, remember he had, he had mentioned three times 
to the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and he would be uh, mocked and tortured and arrested and then raised from the dead. And that's where Peter said, no, Lord, it's not going to happen to you. And Jesus pulls him aside, get, me, get behind me, Satan. So they, Jesus knew exactly what was coming when they went down to Jerusalem. The disciples still were a little bit hard-headed, just like I can be and you can be, about understanding what Jesus meant. But he's coming into to Jerusalem during Passover. So Passover was a celebration that every, once a year, celebrating their escape from Egypt from centuries before. And every good Jew was expected to come to Jerusalem for Passover. All right, so Jerusalem at that time was a town of maybe like 30,000. It would swell in size to about 180,000. So you can imagine prior to Passover, there's this long trail of people from Galilee coming down the roads, walking with donkeys or whatever, into Judea. All right, so I'm saying that because there's a lot of people. So Jesus would have been one of them. Jesus and his disciples would have been walking down, taking days to come down, and then eventually getting into Jerusalem by Passover, along with a lot of other people from outside of Judea and outside of Jerusalem. All right, so, um, so he enters Jerusalem. And uh, I get my reading glasses out. I'm 60 now. I can use these without being made fun of, right? All right. So this is the starting. This is the first part of his coming into Jerusalem. All right. So, but keep in mind the Judean Galilean kind of uh, tension. All right. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey. You'll see a donkey tied there with his colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and they'll immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, and we read this at the start of the service from Zechariah 9. This is a prophecy uh, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So uh, usually the idea of a king, when a king came in, he would be riding his war horse. But there's an Old Testament situation where David comes back after battle, after actually in a battle against his son Absalom. But David comes back on a donkey. And the sense of when you come back on a donkey is humble, and I'm coming back for peace. I'm not, a, I'm not a war leader. I'm coming back for peace. So Jesus, not only from the Zechariah passage, from every good Jew would have known this passage from Zechariah, and they would have also known David's history of David coming back into town on a donkey. All right? So this was a deliberate act of self-proclamation of him being the king and the Messiah. All right? So it was, it was deliberate, and he knew it was going to be provocative. All right? Tell the people in Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Again, most of the crowd would have been Galileans because they were coming down with into Jerusalem. So it was kind of the despised, blue-collar-ish, uneducated, funny accent, not as religious as we are kind of thing, all right? And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. 
And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. All right, that's what we read at the start of the verse 2 from Psalm 118. Praise God and blessing on him, blessing on him who comes in the name of the Lord. So it was clearly a psalm that was, again, every Jewish man and woman, boy and girl would have known this. It was a psalm that was about the Messiah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So they were, they, and I'm saying not the disciples, but just the Galileans and the people were ecstatic. He's the one. He's the one. But then the next line says this. This entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And you can, again, sense if you understand the, the Judean kind of mindset, it was who is this kind of like, who is this? Who does he think he is? Like, what's going on here? Because they didn't, the general attitude was, especially among the Pharisees, nothing good comes from Galilee or Nazareth. I mean, they're not close enough. They don't, they don't live close to the temple. They don't understand how we do things here. So who is this? I mean, I think some knew it was Jesus, but it was still kind of this sense of, who, what's going on here? Who is this? So that's why, go to the next slide. Go, keep going past that. Go past my Pharisees. Next one, then. This, the next one you heard is, uh, keep going right here. They're in an uproar. And uproar, again, like I said, it means kind of agitated. It's not uproar like, yes, we won the game. It's, it's uproar like, hey, what's going on here? Because, one, they were, they were, they, city of Jerusalem, led by the religious elite, it's kind of like, this doesn't fit Passover. This is not the right way to do religion. But two... They were always concerned about, well, what if the Romans, Romans controlled Jerusalem? What if the Romans see this as kind of like a riot? We don't want the Roman government to get involved here. So that was a legitimate fear, but the, the other, the larger fear was pride-driven was, this doesn't fit worse. This, this isn't the right way to do religion. Who is this? So they were in an uproar, and the crowds replied, the crowds coming in, it's Jesus and you can see the, prof, the, the crowds, and maybe Matthew included this intentionally, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's almost like saying he's from the hills of West Virginia, and he's who we think he is. He's the king. And it's kind of like this, so there. I mean, if you remember, even one of the disciples when they were first called said to another one, what, what good comes out of Nazareth? And you might even remember when, after, when Jesus was being on trial, Somebody said to Peter, you're a Galilean. They could tell, I could tell by your accent. So there was a clear sense. So when they say it's Jesus, he's the prophet from Galilee. These people over here, and I say these people over here again, I, I do this in jest, but sometimes we, it's me over here. Sometimes it could be us. And we're not quite sure if this is the right way to do religion or Maybe it's a little undignified of what's going on. So what's, what's going on? What, does Jesus ever put us into uproars? Does Jesus ever agitate you? He does me. Does he ever unsettle you? Does he ever do things that aren't according to the agenda that you set for your life even spiritually? 
So, again, we, we want to think we're kind of pure and salt of the earth people like the Galileans, which they have their own issues, but sometimes we have to understand we have a little bit of Pharisee inside of us, and uh, Jesus, he might put us in an uproar. Like, what's going on here? I mean, maybe some of you right now in your life, you're asking Jesus, what's going on? So here's my, here's my takeaway from this part of the passage. We love to praise Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. However, he can be very unnerving and agitating at times as well. So we have this sense in us, we, we love to worship, we love to praise Jesus. He's, Jesus, you're good, I love you, I will follow you. But then he does something or allows something. Usually he does something or he says something that can be actually a little unnerving and agitating, like, because it doesn't fit your or my agenda for how my life is supposed to go. Maybe it doesn't happen to you. I'm assuming it does. It happens to me. Even just recently, there's something that I think Jesus has put in my life that's been unnerving to me, and I'm just like, oh, come on. Does this have to happen? What, who, who are you anyway? <laughs> What's going on? So part of... So yeah, we love the part of Palm Sunday where they're praising and singing and kids are shouting and it's loud. But then Jesus does something where all of a sudden this, he provokes us. He provokes the part of us that needs to be provoked because it needs to be broken and healed. He doesn't provoke us because he loves provoking. He provokes us because he knows that's part of healing. I've never been to Alan Meyer, endodontist over here, but I'm sure people think he's provoking my mouth all the time. He's poking and shots and nah, nah, nah. And Dr. Jesse over here, same thing. Doctors have to provoke the body to get results, right? So sometimes Jesus may have to provoke your heart or my heart to get the healing and results that he wants to see. And sometimes he does it quite deliberately Always humble and gentle on the donkey that he comes in. Always looks for peace. But he's a humble, gentle king who has to provoke when he needs to because he cares about us becoming the kind of people he wants us to be. He's not just provoking. Again, you you probably work with people that you think, oh, they provoke me all the time. That's not Jesus. He doesn't provoke because he's a jerk. He provokes because he loves you intensely. So that's the first part of this passage. Second part... Second part is uh, Jesus cleaning the temple. Um, in, the, in the four Gospels, it's included at, at different times. Some people think that maybe Jesus cleared the temple more than once. In John's Gospel, it happens at the beginning of ministry. Some other Gospels, it happens during the week of Easter. Some aren't sure whether this happened right after the Palm Sunday write-in. Could have been on Monday, but Matthew makes it sound like it was back-to-back. I mean, whenever it happened is, is irrelevant, but it happened during this time, and this is what happens, all right? So Jesus has just kind of created an uproar. Who is this? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth, you know. Jesus then entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice, all right? Drive out, not, not ask them to leave. He drove them out. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, all right? So Jesus drove out and knocked over. Jesus drove out and knocked over. It seems a little violent, right? He wasn't kind to solve. The other, other gospels actually say he made a whip of cords. He didn't whip people. He whipped the animals to get them out of there. So there's a, there's a 
deliberate violence about Jesus in this situation. And again, if he, while he was doing this, and nobody else was helping him, the disciples didn't join in. I'm guessing if you and I would have been there, and we would have been one of the disciples, or part of his entourage, we might have been like, oh my, what's he doing? I mean, I'm sure they, they weren't like, they're probably like, he's, what's he doing? Now let me explain a little bit about what he's doing. So the temple court is about the size of 33 football fields. So it's a big area. Not the temple itself, but this was a, called the court of the Gentiles. So pretty much anybody can go in the court of the Gentiles. During Passover, so during Passover, when you came to Jerusalem, when the 30,000 swelled to 180,000, those extra 150,000 people had to have animals to sacrifice because that was part of Passover. Dove, you know, uh, lamb. They also had to have, everybody had to have a certain coinage that was only minted for the temple. So they had to pay a temple tax in the coinage of the temple. So it's almost like, you know, if you've ever been to a foreign country and you get off the plane and you're in, you know, Germany, this is before the age of euros, you had to get your dollars changed to marks, German marks, or, you know, whatever country you go to, you have to get it changed. And the temple would only accept the temple payment in the temple currency, all right? So it's understandable. So if, you know, if Kathy and I live up in Galilee and we have to go down to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. We may not, with, you know, with a van full of kids, we may not have room in our van to throw in a dove and a lamb and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have vans there, you know what I mean. They, they, they knew they'd have to get it down there, and they knew they had to exchange their money down there. So good intentions for these people who were selling and buying, but initially that selling and buying maybe happened along the roadside as they were coming into Jerusalem or outside of the temple. Somehow this selling and buying, under the approval of the Pharisees, moved into the temple area. It's a place where at least Gentiles, everybody was allowed to pray. And not only moved in there, but there was a clear sense that they had actually jacked up the prices. It's kind of like when you go to a professional baseball game, a Coke costs you $6 and a hot dog 25 or whatever. You know, they jack up the prices because they got you. All right? So the people who were selling and buying animals or selling, yeah, and the, and the coin changers, the origin of that was good intentions. We're trying to help people who can't haul it down from Galilee. But like a lot of things in our lives that start with good intentions, it became self-serving. These guys, and I'm, they got a cut of the profits. So, hey, why not move him into the temple courts? Because it's going to be easier, and then the prices got jacked up. So, Jesus isn't just upset because of business happening in the temple. It's upset because of what they were doing. So, um, so then he, Jesus knocks them over, knocks chairs over, creates a little bit of a stir. And he says to them, the scriptures declare, this is back in Matthew 21, my temple will be called the house of prayer but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Um, another way to translate it, it's a cave of robbers. It, he, he, didn't, he didn't just use general language. You've kind of gone, gone overboard a little bit. He said, you're a bunch of thieves. And, and 
they're hearing this too because it's directed toward them, not just the sellers. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. This is right after he did all this. These guys are upset already and now he's healing people and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. So all these kids, hey, he's got to be pushing. Praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. Go to the next slide. The leaders were indignant. I mean, that's, that's indignant. You know, you cleared the temple. You created a commotion. You messed up with our prophets, and you're messing up with the system here. You healed people. I mean, lepers. You healed people. And now the kids are saying, praise be to the son of David. Clearly an expression. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And I love Jesus' response. His response is, yes. Yeah. Hear what they're saying? Yes. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you, great, give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany. Don't, don't, don't you know Jesus what they're saying? Yeah, I do. Scripture says you've taught even the children to give praise to the Messiah. So Jesus comes in. He creates an uproar on his way in. Who is this guy? Now he creates a whole different kind of uproar. And he's messing with the system. He's messing with my way of life and your way of life. And we don't like it. They don't like it. All right? Here's the takeaway from this part of the passage. Jesus will not tolerate anything that keeps people from connecting with God. So he, he wasn't mad. They were making... He was mad, of course. They were making exorbitant profits on their buying and selling. He was most upset. He said, my house should be called the house of prayer. People were coming to the temple to pray and connect with God. And now there was commotion, buying and selling. He was most upset that what was happening was keeping people from connecting with God. People that wanted to connect with God. They wanted to go through the sacrifice in the proper way, but they had to pay three times as much for a dove. They wanted to pay their temple tax, but they had to pay three times the exchange rate or whatever. And they wanted to pray, but it was a little bit distracting when you're praying next to animals and noise. So Jesus wasn't upset necessarily because there was commerce happening. Yeah, he was upset at that. He was upset at what that did to keep ordinary people like you and me from connecting with God in the way that we need to connect. So I'll say with this statement too, Jesus won't tolerate anything in his temple that keep people from connecting with God. The New Testament tells us our, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He won't tolerate anything in me that keeps me from connecting with God. I mean, I have a picture I've had before where, from a movie, of course, where Jesus is swinging his whip at the temple. <laughs> and I like to say to people, do you really want this guy as your leader? Because he may, he may say there's some things in you that he doesn't tolerate because he knows it's keeping you from 
a closer relationship with God. And we get indignant when he points it out. We get, we get, we, we get, I'm not gullum, we get, all right? We get indignant when he starts flipping our tables. And we're like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And Jesus is like, that doesn't belong here. Whoa, what do you mean? That? No, that part of your life doesn't belong in the part of your heart that's dedicated to me. So either you get rid of it or stop calling me Lord. So Jesus doesn't have, he doesn't have, he doesn't tolerate that in me. He doesn't tolerate in me uh, pride. He's pointed it out to me in different situations. He doesn't tolerate in me uh, anger, he, uh, sinful anger. He doesn't tolerate those things, and he will point it out to me. He will point it out. You've all had things pointed out that Jesus points things out to you, and your, your first reaction probably is you're a little indignant, kind of like, oh, come on. Can't, I got 99% of Christianity right, so we think. We maybe have like 50 can't you just leave this part of me alone? And Jesus is like, no. I I want you to completely know the Father and have a fullness of life that you're meant to have. And as long as you you keep those tables and those cages set up in your heart that isn't part of what belongs there, I'm going to flip them. And either he flips them or he leaves them alone. If he leaves them alone, that means he stops helping you grow. So uh, the lesson of Palm Sunday, yeah, it's, I mean... You know, I've been in church before where you know, the kids will come with a procession of palm branches, and that's great. Um, I've never seen a church have a donkey down, down the aisle, though, but maybe we could do that sometime. That's great. It's a king. He's the Messiah. He's the king. We should worship him. We should, we, it's okay to be expressive and exuberant. But when I read this passage earlier this week, and I saw that well, Jesus is really he's provoking things. He knew exactly what he was doing. He provoked the city to be in an uproar. He provoked the Pharisees to be indignant. He provokes me that way. He provokes you that way. But when he does it, he does it because he wants us to be fully alive. He doesn't do it because he's just mad at us. And, and granted, he doesn't do it continually. Jesus isn't like a continuous provoker. Yeah, he, he loves us. He gives us good gifts. He does great things in our lives. All of us could attest to that. But we also could test the fact there's times where we feel like he's poking and prodding like an unwelcome doctor or unwelcome dentist. Will you please stop poking and prodding? Well, if you want to get better, I've got to poke and prod, right? So uh, following Jesus, go to the next slide, last slide. So Jesus says follow him. So if we're going to follow him, we have to listen to him, right? Following and listening are kind of together. We're going to follow him. He wants us to obey him. He even said, if you love me, you'll obey me. I mean, Jesus isn't a legalist about that. He just said, if you love me, you're going to obey me. And he tells us to do things like forgiving those who've hurt us, or he tells us to look to the needs of others above our own. He tells us to be a servant before we're a master. He tells us all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things that Jesus says to do that are hard to do, but he says they're hard to do because you can't do it without my spirit inside of you. But if you do those things... You will be the kind of person you've never dreamed you could be, but you've always hoped you could be. So we follow Jesus, and I've said this before, and I think I, I probably maybe get tired of me saying I always remind my son, David, he'll say, well, this, this, I'll ask him about a certain friend of his, well, they believe in God. I'm just like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't really, the Bible says demons believe in God. Well, he said they're a Christian. 
well, do they say they're a Christian because they're not a Muslim? And then I ask him, do they follow Jesus? And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't think so. Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants followers. He doesn't want labels. I'm a Christian. He wants followers. That's all he asked for. But that's all he asked for because he asked for all, right? So let me pray. So Jesus, we... Uh, I don't think we have any worship songs about you being the great provoker, but we know that's what you do. And I know we don't have any worship songs about us being in an uproar or being indignant, but we know that's part of our journey with you. But we know that's not the core of the journey. It's not the end point of the journey. It's just what you do because you care so deeply about us becoming rid of anything that doesn't belong in our hearts so we can be more and more full of the life-giving spirit inside of us. That's what we want. We want to be full of your Holy Spirit, full of generosity, joy, peace, forgiveness, full in a way that we can't even imagine because we don't know what that looks like except looking at you. But we want to be full of your Holy Spirit. So Jesus... Um, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. It's kind of an invitation for you to provoke. But we know you do it with kindness, but clarity. And we might be unnerved by it. But we also know from Psalm 139 that you will lead us into an everlasting kind of life even now. That's what we want. So search away, provoke away. Um, love us like you always do. Show us mercy like you always do. Um, fill us with joy like you always do. And we love you, Jesus. And this next week of your life, can't imagine what that was like for you, but you went into it with great deliberation, but also not hesitating because you knew this was for us. And we're grateful, Jesus, and we ask this all in your name. Amen.